Well, sorry about the sound there. I already realized the first thing I did wrong. There's probably going to be a lot of them today. Um, let me just tell you ahead of time. Uh, my family and some friends have asked, how you doing today? And optimistically, I'm at about 4 out of 10. I'd say I'm at about 40% today. Um, when the best you can do is I've sipped a little ginger ale. I've had four saltine crackers and a lot of electrolytes. Um, that's, um, it gives you an idea of uh, where we are. Um, food poisoning's ugly stuff, and the older you get, the longer it takes you to get over it. So uh, I'm not looking for uh, sympathy from my critics and everything else, uh, just letting you know. And I just got off the phone a few minutes ago with the kind pastor up in Ely, Minnesota, I talked with the folks in Spearfish. I talked with Clyde Bauman, the great Milo Hotzenbuehler, who I was going to be meeting with on the way. Uh, what we've had to do is we've we've had to cut out the middle portion of this trip. Um, I was going to be pushing it as it was. Um, the days were too long, but it was the only way I could get up there and back in time between events here in Colorado. And I wanted to try to do it. I wanted to try to go north, and I will try to in the future. Obviously. It's better to go to places like Ely, Minnesota in July <laughs> than it is in December, January, February, anywhere in there. Um, so we will try to uh, work things out to be able to go up there. You know, minimally next year, we might be able to work something out to do some of the topics we're going to do from the, from the uh, unit here. Uh, I mean, honestly, in fact, I didn't talk to Rich about it, but it's easier for me to do um, programs, uh, presentations, webcasts uh, from here than it is from the office in Phoenix because I've got this ATEM and um, we need an ATEM in my little studio, the smaller the two studios, so I can control the cameras. Do what we did when I ran it live. Um, I'm not, I, I, I'd have to learn how to hook stuff up to make that happen. Maybe there could be some switches we could get that would allow me to just do it fairly easily. I don't know. But doing a presentation, as we're doing presentations on biblical reliability, textual criticism, canon, stuff like that, doing it in here is the easiest place right now for me to do that. And um, so may work something like that out for Ely uh, or do it next year. Sort of, sort of depends on uh, really on the, their Internet uh, capabilities. So... My apologies to uh, everyone. I really wasn't doing anything other than the Ely Spearfish and the meeting with Clyde because I was doing such long, um, long uh, drives each day. And uh, so we're also having internet problems today, which is strange. When we got to this location, we had over 300 megabits download. I'm watching right now, and our cash is up to 63%. That's not good. Uh, that means we're we're struggling. We our our 5G wireless hotspot just completely failed on us. It's just not even working, and so we're on Starlink right now. So, uh, worst comes to worst, uh, especially for this presentation, we will upload the clean version of it um, that I have right here recording over there and it is recording good double double check that because some people might be saying okay you're not feeling well um you're you you get winded walking up the stairs right now my my i would lose a i would lose an arm wrestling match to my granddaughter Janie right now and she's uh, uh she's young um so why why push it why not just do what you did all day yesterday and sleep um well that gets boring first of all but secondly, there are times, uh, first of all, I love doing this program. It, it is one, a major part of, of our ministry, is getting this type of information out to people, and we love doing it uh, that way. And uh, the cash is about to uh, max out at, at 100%, so uh, I'm not going to really worry about that too much anymore. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We'll, we'll get it uh, uploaded as soon as we possibly can, I, I promise you that. Anyway, um, 
why why do this? Why push it when you're obviously not at 100%? Uh, I've told the story before that when I was writing The Forgotten Trinity and I was dealing with the chapter that identifies texts, and I could expand this chapter a good bit, and I would expand this chapter a good bit if we did a third edition of The Forgotten Trinity. I think it would be one of the more important things I could do. Um, I was looking at the Isaiah 6, John 12, 41 um, set of passages that identify Jesus as Yahweh. And again, I, no one ever taught us to do this, taught me to do this, but I felt like the, the way to make that the strongest presentation was to read what the strongest arguments were on the other side. That's that's how we dealt with Mormonism. That's one of the reasons we were always going to the LDS bookstore in Salt Lake City and buying the newest books and and all that kind of stuff. And so I read Greg Stafford's argumentation um, in his book, Defending Jehovah's Witnesses, and he eventually left Jehovah's Witnesses. But I left, I, I read his presentation. And... I mentioned on the last program what his argumentation was, and that is that in John 12, you have citations from both Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, as well as Isaiah chapter 6, and that he tried to make the connection to the Isaiah 53 passage uh, so that you could try to break the connection to Isaiah 6. It's really not possible to do, but that's, that's what he did. And in the process of analyzing his argumentation, that's when I discovered I had not, I suppose there's commentary someplace, but in none of the commentaries that I had was this mentioned. I discovered the textual variant in the Greek Septuagint um, to um, the, the reading saw his glory in Isaiah 6. And so it was... In listening to the other side, it was in listening to what they had to say that I discovered a much deeper, um, more full understanding of the truth and a defense of the truth. So what happened before I got food poisoning, um, what happened was a friend of mine who I will not mention simply because he sends me a lot of stuff from people some of whom might block him if they knew that he sends me information. Um, he doesn't interact with a lot of folks all the time, and so he gets to read people that otherwise um, would block people. Sent me um, a fairly recent article from Dale Tuggy, and of course we are taking on Dale Tuggy. We are looking at Dale Tuggy's arguments and this was dated uh, May 29th this year so not very not very long ago it's on his Trinity's website uh, trinities.org Jude 5 did Jesus deliver the people out of Egypt and as soon as I saw it I'm like oh cool why because here's an opportunity to do two things at once to respond to Dale Tuggy and to deal with with Jude 5 and CBGM. Now, a few years ago, I was working, I was in a doctoral program at Northwest University in Pachasum, South Africa. I was pursuing that study, specifically focused on P45, because my doctor Vater there uh, was a student of Bruce, Bruce Metzger and, and uh, graduated from Princeton with a PhD in textual criticism in 1974. Unfortunately, my Dr. Vader had a major heart attack um, shortly into the COVID period and had to retire. And that's why I haven't been able to pursue that uh, work down there. And now wouldn't have any chances to be going down there anyway. Be that as it may, um, that was when I was forced uh, to be introduced to CBGM, Coherence-Based Genealogical Method. Coherence-based genealogical method. So um, CBGM is a new tool 
that is being utilized by the Institute for New Testament Manuscripts and Research, so on and so forth. Munster. Everybody just calls it Munster. And which I got to visit in 2019. And um, it is the primary driving force in all the changes uh, that have been introduced into what's called the ECM. Now stick with me here. There's a reason to... There's, some people say you just talk about stuff that goes over people's heads. Most of the times when something goes over someone's heads, it's totally due to terminology. It's, that's all it is. So um, ECM is the Editio Critico Mayor, which is the massive, will be the massive, critical edition of the Greek New Testament. Many, many volumes. Um, many, many volumes. Uh, most of the books are at least two volumes, some three or four, and it's not anywhere near done. They've got Mark, Acts, uh, and the Catholic Epistles. They've sort of fallen behind. I think I think uh, COVID impacted things like that, unfortunately. I was hoping that John would be out by now, uh, but, but it's not. And they've got uh, Mark, Acts, and the Catholic Epistles so far. Anyway, it is it involves one of the largest collations of manuscripts ever done. Collations, that is, comparing the readings of manuscripts to one another. And that in and of itself, for some Christians, is troubling. It shouldn't be. It is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's something that needs to be happening while we have peace. Uh, it's not something that happens during times of war. <laughs> And the more information we have on the New Testament, the better. And so there are, I could show you, I won't right now, I want to get into the presentation, but the modules for Acts and Mark are online and they keep making changes to them, which is fine. You know, they add features and things like that. And then you have to go back and read through the PDFs and learn how to use the whole thing all over again. But that's okay. Um, and the... Uh, the general epistles, Catholic epistles, very old, old much older technology that I, I wish they'd get, they'd bring that up to and make it consistent with Mark and Acts. Eventually, I'm sure once the whole thing's done, there will be a single interface that will allow you uh, to study textual variants using CBGM. Now, CBGM is a been a long time since I mentioned this. I'm not going to go in depth in it. You can, if you just look up CBGM in the previous um, dividing lines, you can pull up where I have gone through some of the basics, some of the very, very basics. It is, um, it's a black box to a lot of people. It is not, we're just going to let the computers figure this out, but everyone knew that at some point in time we would use computers to help us in analyzing the manuscripts. You have, you know, just under 6,000 fragments of the New Testament in Greek, 20,000 in Latin, put them all together with other languages, Coptic, Sahidic, Boharic. And we're not even talking here about the early church fathers, even though that can be added in uh, at some point in the, in the future and probably will be. But CBGM was the brainchild of some brilliant Germans, don't hold that against them, please. I know some really brilliant Germans. Um, which is why it has a horrible name. Because Germans can't name anything in a... They just slam words together and just gets longer and longer and longer. And that's just... It's a German thing. I love you guys. Um, but... Basically what, it's, what it is doing is it's saying, look, we've lost a lot of manuscripts to history. And so there are a lot of gaps. Putting together a, a genealogy for any one manuscript is next to impossible. The best way that we can, uh, we can do this is by looking at not just the major variants, because a lot of us who spend a lot of time just reading textual material and studying textual material, you can start getting an idea of the, the flavor of a particular manuscript. And that's really what developed into what are called 
families, the Byzantine, Alexandrian, Caesarean, uh, stuff like that. Older terminology now. CBGM has challenged a lot of that. And um, you, you can start getting an idea that, oh, yeah, you know, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, you know, they happen to agree with a lot of the papyri on these certain readings. And, but what you can't do as a human being is track every reading of every manuscript in comparison to every other manuscript. It's just too many data points. Computers can. And hence, CBGM is based upon two different kinds of what are called coherence. So, so if you have two manuscripts of, let's just use a small book, 1 John, and they only have, say, five differences, one difference per chapter between them. They have a massively high coherence. They are closely related. And so there is what's called pre-genealogical coherence and post-genealogical coherence. And so the, the pre-genealogical coherence is just, you, you put the numbers in the computer and how often do these agree and disagree? And when you look at the variance uh, from other manuscripts, how often do these two agree against other manuscripts? Not just It's not just what's the percentage of agreement of all manuscripts, though we now have much better information about that than we ever had before. I mean, you can demonstrate that the New Testament manuscript tradition is astonishingly accurate and the idea that it's some kind of mishmash of all sorts of people trying to make all sorts of changes just the, the computers say no nope, that's not really what happened <laughs> um so so the, the pre-genealogical coherence is just sort of the the bulk number as far as agreements and disagreements between two manuscripts when you get into what's called genealogical coherence, this is where you have a subjective element. And the subjective element is, if you look at a variant, um, for most variants, it's actually very easy to go, this reading came from that reading. This reading caused that reading to come about. And what they've done is, and this is where editors have had to do this, humans do this, is they have... For example, you can bring up Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in the CBGM databases for Mark and, and Acts. And you can get a number, you can get a pre-genealogical coherence number, and then you can get a genealogical coherence number, which is based upon what's called text flow. And that is the decisions of editors as to which way the text was going. And so, you know, 60% of the time, um, I think it's around that. I, I didn't bring it up, but memory uh, memory serves me, which in my current state may not. Um, 60, about 60% 60 of the time, I think, they say that Vaticanus contains a reading that is prior to uh, that of Sinaiticus. So that gives you an idea of the relationship of the manuscripts as far as where they are in the textual flow. And um, I, I, again, in the past, I have done entire programs when I was specifically working on this. I haven't completely stopped working on it, but um, not doing what I was doing once. Um, it's, it's wonderful technology. I have questions about it. My Dr. Vader had questions about it. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do was use manuscript P45, which is a uh, unique manuscript from around 220. It's unique because it contains portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The only one we have that, that had uh, those books together. Not in the same order, by the way. It was in the Western order, not, not in the order we have today. Anyway, um, I wanted to use P45 to analyze... Um, the application of CBGM to the papyri. And that, that's an area that I would still love to do that work. Uh, I'll be honest with you, the changes in the world since 2020 has made it less 
it, it would be something that would be very beneficial down the road and, and maybe it might still be able to be done, but there are other pressing issues uh, on the church today. Um, we'll, we'll see if future generations get to that type of thing, but that was what I was working on. And, and so I spent a lot of time in CBGM and uh, utilizing the CBGM materials. And so all of that, uh, 20 minutes uh, to say to you that um, Jude 5 is one of the key texts um, that I use to explain to people how CBGM has impacted their uh, New Testament already. So let me show you here. Uh, here is uh, Jude 5. And the key issue is right here. This is the LSV. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now the New American Standard um, the New American Standard has not followed um, CBGM at this point. The, the Nessialan 28th edition, which is the current edition of the Nessialan text, um, changed from Kurios to Jesus. Now, again, you go back to NA27, the textual variant was listed there, but the editors chose Lord over Jesus. 28, they put Jesus as the main text and Lord in the footnotes. The reason for that is that when you look at the manuscripts that have the reading Jesus, they have a higher coherence than the manuscripts that say Lord. What does that mean? When you look at the manuscripts in CBGM and the CBGM databases, when you look at the manuscripts that say Jesus, they have a higher rate of agreement with the other manuscripts that say Jesus, which means they are close, more closely related to one another. There hasn't been a disruption in the transmission of the text. The manuscripts that say kudios often have their closest relative in the coherence realm, says Jesus, not kudios. So there's been a disruption in the transmission of the text at that point between those manuscripts. And as a result, uh, even though it was always clear that Jesus had a very early and strong attestation in the manuscripts, now you have the added analysis of a higher coherence, it's actually a pre-genealogical coherence in this case, um, amongst the manuscripts that say Jesus rather than those that say Lord. And as a result, the NA28 put Jesus and the LSB follows that, which I agree with. And so... We were expecting John and Matthew, at least last year, to come out in the ECM. Uh, to my knowledge, they haven't come out yet. I check every few months. I would I would assume that given the feeds I follow in Facebook and Twitter that I would know uh, when they come out and uh, when they'll be available. Um, but this is the ongoing work that will produce the ECM and then my my guess would be that as soon as the whole New Testament's done, and it'll be huge, probably like 40 volumes at least. Um, maybe more now I think about it. And, it'll, and it's available online, which is nice as well, which means you'll have it in accordance and Logos and all that kind of stuff eventually. Um, that they'll start a revision. That's just the nature of things. As more collations are done, the database expands. And of course, the process of scholarship is to analyze, do the analysis of, you know, what do we find from looking at the papyri and things like that. So that's the background of the Jude 5. And you can see why Dale Tuggy uh, comes to the conclusion, I, I don't think that Jesus is, uh, you know, he takes a few shots at the uh, NET and he puts a picture of, you know, he puts a picture of Sinaiticus with uh, Kurios uh, listed, and that's true. Uh, but you will notice, um, here we go. Yeah, um, let me blow this one up and this one up here. 
uh, why can't I blow you up? Huh. That's odd. Why can't I increase the size? Um, well, you'll just have to have to believe me on this one. Um, you can see uh, in Jude 5, here is uh, Sinaiticus, and it does have Kudios. That's called a Nomina Sacra. It looks like KC. Um, if you can see that up there, uh, KC. That's C is the final form Sigma, uh, Kappa, with the line over top, Kudios, the two-letter abbreviation, Nomina Sacra, Kudios, of Lord. Uh, but in... Uh, over here in uh, Vaticanus, which I can't blow up for you, it's IC, Jesus. So it's Jesus. And here in Codex Alexandrinus, uh, it, it is also, um, there it is, very small, right there, IC, Jesus. So, um, and then P72 has a very, very interesting reading um, where it has Hati Theos. Christos, is a, it's a triletter nomina sacra, uh, Cairo Sigma. Uh, so it has a even more interesting variant at that point. Uh, God, probably God, even Christ, uh, would be P72. And so uh, Dale Tuggy is, is correct to say that you should never make uh, dogmatic conclusions based upon text with major textual variance. This is a major textual variance. So I wouldn't, if I was just making a simple list of verses, I would have to have an asterisk. I'd have to have some discussion of the textual variance, uh, just as you at John 1.18. That doesn't mean these texts become irrelevant. And what happened was when my friend sent me uh, this, I said, oh, cool, I'll get to talk about CBGM and and a few things like that. Tiny sip of ginger ale to try to. Um, but once I started digging into it, I started finding more and more. And that's what I wanted to share with you. That's why I'm pushing myself to do this on a day when I don't feel like it physically, but I really feel like it um, spiritually. So um, I hope that this will be of, of use to folks in, uh, in looking at this. So let me switch over to, there we go. Um, let's look at the text itself for a moment. And think with me, follow with me with the, with, what the textual flow here is. What, what is the argument, okay? Um, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly, epagonizomai is the term there, to agonize, contend earnestly for the faith. It's literally the once for all delivered to the saints faith, or for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, I think when you, when you follow the flow of thought. This is going to go into further warnings about false prophets and false teachers, very similar to 2 Peter. And notice, once these false teachers are introduced, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And we could spend a long time, I don't have the strength, unfortunately, to do this, but those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. There is some serious theology there and in Second Peter. There's clear parallels between Jude and Second Peter. There's some connection there. We don't know exactly what it was. Uh, could have been a meeting of apostles, and they said, you know, 
you need to communicate with the people that are in connection with you, and I'll communicate with people in connection. These are some of the things we need to make sure people understand. Um, but there's a there's theology there um, that doesn't fit well with a lot of the synergism of today. Anyways, these are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality. That sounds like the Nicolaitans. Um, that sounds like what Jesus was talking about in Revelation. And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to come back for a moment to that phrase. Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Think about what that means. The Greek term is despota, from which we get despot. Now, despot's not a nice word in English. But it means owner, master. It was a slave owner in, in many contexts. In fact, uh, Paul uses it that way. When he's, those of you who are slave owners, masters, treat your slaves in this fashion. Jesus is said to be our only Despota kai kurios, Jesus Christ. And then just follow the, I won't take the image down, but just follow the, the, the train of thought. So there are these people who are denying the grace of God. They're denying, they're turning the grace of God into sensuality. And they are denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus our only master and Lord? If you're a Unitarian, no. In fact, how can he be called only Master and Lord? Then follow the follow the thinking. If you've just identified Jesus as our only Master and Lord, now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, our only Master and Lord, our despota, Kaikurios, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, we know who that was, that was Yahweh, what do you do? Subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So the flow is very clear. And it makes perfect sense to have Jesus as the reading of verse 5 because of the fact that the denial is of whom? Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So they're not believing and therefore, they are going to face judgment from the one who, having saved a people out of the land of Egypt, we know that that people that were taken out of Egypt were a very mixed company. A very mixed company. They may have been circumcised in the flesh, but very few of them were circumcised in heart. And so you have the wilderness wanderings, and you have Jesus destroying those who did not believe. Well, I know there's a lot of people today, don't talk to me about Jesus, it would destroy people who don't believe. But the reality is, um, that's what you have uh, in, in the New Testament. So let's, let's look at this um, in, in the original language. I'm going to get the font a little bit larger here. Um, just so we can see. So here is, um, so perverting the grace uh, of God into licentiousness, sensuality. Kai tan manon despotain kai kurian hemon yesun christan arnumenoi. So arnumenoi is your um, participle denying, and hence, and the only despot and Lord of us, Jesus Christ denying. That's what you have um, in Jude 4. Now, there are some textual variants, uh, as mentioned before. Uh, most of them have to do with the uh, location of pronouns, but one, um, possibly in... Uh, P, the, the P vid, you probably can't say it's too small. I can't blow it up any larger on my screen. And a number of other manuscripts. And have um, our God 
and Lord and try to make a distinction between the two. But you'll notice Sinaiticus, Alexander's, Vaticanus, C33, and uh, even 1739, 1739, by the way, uh, together with 1881, are two around 10th century minuscules that we can tell had very early exemplars, second, third century exemplars they were being made, they were copies of. So they have a higher level of uh, value uh, given the text that they, that they contain. But notice this phraseology, ton manon despotain kai kurion, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's just off the, off the top of your head, you immediately start thinking about um, what happened, uh, what, what happens when you talk to Unitarians about the subject of uh, John chapter 17. They love John 17, 3. They don't love John 17, 5. They love John 17, 3. When Jesus in prayer to the Father refers to him as the only true God, and they go, see, Jesus can't be God because he says the Father is the only true God, as if he would say, you're one of many gods, you're one of three gods, you're not God at all. What, what's the world is he supposed to say? Um, yes, Jesus, the Father is the only true God, and as long as you don't mix up your categories, you don't ignore the fact Jesus is called God in the exact same sense the Father is called God, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all identified as Yahweh, if you just allow the Bible to actually speak for itself instead of being a sophist and limiting what God's revelation can say, um, then you, you go, you know, one sentence later, and Jesus is talking about glorifying me with the glory which I had with you in your presence before the world was. This is one divine person speaking to another divine person. But they're always saying, see, only true God. Okay, so is Jesus the only Master and Lord? Is the Father not despotak Kurios? Is he not Master and Lord? Now, by the way, I have to mention this because people get a little confused. But um, when you see despota, despotain, Kurios, Kurion, Kuri, uh, we'll see Kuri in a moment. These are just different cases in Greek. It's, it's showing you how the, it doesn't change the meaning of the word. It tells you how the word is functioning in a sentence. And so, tan manan despotain kai kurion, those are accusatives. And so, where are the accusatives? Because they're the direct object of the participial action of denying. And so they'd be in the accusative. If they are the subject of the sentence, then they, it'd be a uh, different form. Kurios, instead of kurion, kuri, would be the vocative, uh, O Lord, the case of address, direct address, though not all of the New Testament follows, not all the New Testament uses the vocative. The vocative was more classical Greek, and it was passing away in common use in the Koine period. Anyway, so if you're confused by that, as Iglesia de Cristo was just a few years ago, um, in regards to uh, Theon at John 1.18, um, that's just a, anybody who gets confused by that is someone who knows nothing whatsoever about the Greek language. They read, they do not read Greek at all. Um, and so then you can, you can see Jude 5, you can see Jesus here, um, that Jesus, uh, delivered, having saved the people out of Egypt, uh, then destroyed those who do not believe. So here's the NA 28 reading, um, whereas uh, the NA27 had, uh, had Kurios there. So what I did is I, um, I looked into the use of that phraseology in the Greek Septuagint, and I found some rather interesting things that I had not discovered before and had seen uh, before. And so I wanted to share them. Uh, with you. Um, here's so here's Jude 4 through 5. In Isaiah 3 1, Idude ha despate scurias sabaoth, which in, uh, let's see if I can get my 
not go over there. Oh, I didn't want you to do that. Huh. Okay. What I'm going to have to do here is take it out of uh, full screen so I can use my cursor. There you go. Um, for behold, Ha'adon, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, Sabaoth. So Adon here, Lord, Yahweh, is rendered in the Greek Septuagint as Ha Despates Kurias Sabaoth, Sabaoth, Lord of Hosts, Yahweh of Hosts, with Adon put before it. And so Despates, Despot, Adonai, Adon in this particular form. Um, in Isaiah 3.1, in Isaiah 10.33, Edugar ha despates kurias sabaoth, again, Adon, Yahweh, sabaoth, same phrase. In Isaiah 10.33, but it's very interesting. This is where I started getting sort of excited um, to look at the context of what you have in Isaiah chapter uh, 10. What came before verse 33? Well, let's let's take a look at it. Um, here's Isaiah 6, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 3, 1. Uh, For behold, ki hini ha'adon Yahweh tzaba'os. So, so, for behold, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, my man, the man of war, the judge, the divine prayer. So, Isaiah 3.1 is a uh, judgment text. And Yahweh is identified as Ha'adon, which is rendered as despates in the Greek Septuagint. So we saw that. Then you go to Isaiah 10.33. So here it is again. Behold the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, Hine Ha'adon, Yahweh, Tzabaoth. Uh, will lop off bows, a terrible crash. Those also who are high in stature will be cut in pieces. Those who are lofty will be made low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. By the mighty one. Hmm. Um, heard that phraseology somewhere before. But what is the context? Well, let's go back. Uh, this is really, really interesting to me, and hopefully it'll be interesting to you. Now, it will be in that day that the remnant of Israel and the and those the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. So they will rely upon Yahweh, Kadosh Yisrael. And to rely is in truth. Uh, emeth is the Hebrew term for, for truth, in truth. will truly rely on Yahweh, Holy One of Israel. But then, notice, this goes into poetry, and you should recognize what happens here. 10.21 says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, or Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destructive end is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Now, if you are thinking... You'll notice the cross-reference over in the corner. I don't know if you can see that. This is what Paul quotes. There we go. This is what Paul quotes in Romans 9 concerning the remnant of Israel. This is an election passage. And this remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to what? El El Gabor. In the Hebrew. El El Gabor. Unto El Gabor. Where have you heard El Gabor before? Well, I can I'll have to scroll a few seconds here, but um, previous chapter. How about uh, Isaiah 9 6? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. El Gabor, Mighty God. Aviad, Eternal Father, I would say Father of Eternity. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. 
There's no question. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the one who brings peace. King of Peace. This is prophecy, and Jesus is called El Gabor in Isaiah 9.6. But we go down here to Isaiah chapter 10, and we have the same terminology being used. They will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, for though your, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to El Gabor. They will believe, remember, uh, truly rely on Yahweh. For though your people or Israel may be like the same, only a remnant within them will return. A destructive end is decreed overflowing with righteousness. So this is, this is a text where you have prophecy concerning what Yahweh is going to do in the future with a remnant. And what is the name of? that the remnant names in the book of Acts. What's the name for which Christians suffer? Jesus. Jesus. And he is called Kurios, which is the exact word used in the Greek Septuagint almost all the time, not all the time, but almost all the time, as the substitute for Yahweh. For Yahweh. It's right there. And I'm like, oh, I've not seen that before, I will confess. So we have some others. In Jeremiah 1.6 and Jeremiah 4.10, you have the exact same thing. O despota kuri. So here you have the vocative forms being used in Jeremiah. Uh, but again, despota and kurios being used together as a single phrase, just as you have Denying our only master and Lord, who? Jesus Christ. In Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's Yahweh. In Jude, it's Jesus. Which fits perfectly with Jude 5. Jesus saved a people, and then he, will, he destroyed those who did not believe. Because the true ones believed in him. Remember, Emeth? Okay, so that wasn't everything. That wasn't everything. Because I looked around at a few other places, and I found Revelation. I was, I think it was Jeff Durbin who said, um, I think it was Jeff who said, if, if the writer of Revelation lived today, um, he would get sued for plagiarism because so much of the book of Revelation are just citations from the Old Testament. And it's true. Same with Hebrews. I'm not sure which has more. That would be an interesting study. Revelation 6 has always fascinated me because of the phraseology, the wrath of the Lamb. There's so much deep theology there. Um, but I started doing a little closer look at that too and went, oh, there's more here than... I thought there was. Let's go over to uh, Revelation chapter 6. Maybe it's back this direction. There it is. So let's start back here with the fifth seal. All right, Revelation 6, uh, 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because the word of God because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with loud voice, and here's where the connection was, and this is what allowed me to start seeing some of this. And they cried out with loud voice, Ha despates! Ha hagios kai aletanos! O Master! Holy and true. Jude says we have one Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Despotes, holy and true. Will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was told them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, had uh, would be completed also. Man, how do you understand this without a recognition of the sovereignty of God? I don't, I don't get it. I really don't. Then I looked... 
when he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood this is all almost formulaic judgment language I, I think the only all due respect but the only way that much of dispensational writing of Revelation has gotten as far as it did is because the people that were reading it had never read the prophets. <laughs> because you see stars falling from heaven and you see moons turning to blood and sun being darkened and vapors and all that. It's judgment language. Uh, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll and is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So the entire earthly order is being upset. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. So everybody, no matter what their position in society, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us in the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. For the great day of their wrath has come. You'll notice that that is a uh, allusion to Zephaniah 1.5. A day of wrath is that day of day of distress and anguish, a day of room and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, using clearly the language of judgment all across the prophets to describe the wrath, which in the Hebrew scriptures is the wrath of Yahweh in judgment. Here, they are calling out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of what? Of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is, this is Revelation 6. In Revelation 5, remember, you have conjoined worship of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And every created thing worships him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And the Lamb. Now, if you make the, the Lamb a, create, a creature, I don't know what you do with that. You know, you're not getting that from the Bible. You're just, you're just coming up with your own theories. But here, judgment, and we know who the judge is, Judgment, the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, and the great day of their wrath has come. Bring this up here a little bit higher. And the great day of their wrath, now there is a, a variant there, as there are all through the book of Revelation. But uh, Sinaiticus has their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And that's what fits with what came before presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, even if you use the singular, it's still one God. Revelation has to struggle with this all the way through, and you can tell in the transmission of the text, and we have the fewest manuscripts of Revelation, um, that scribes struggled with that. So, I'm looking at this, and I'm going, okay, the crying out to the despota, the, the souls under the altar. And then the next seal, the wrath is now beginning to pour out. And you have these Old Testament citations uh, being, being brought forth. Okay. Well, where are they quoting from? Isaiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. I hopefully have that over here someplace. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea. There we go. I knew it'd be in there someplace. That is, that is one useful thing with uh, accordances uh, 
thing. You go back to all the sections. Isaiah 2. The loftiness of man we bowed down, and the men who are high we made low. What does it say? And Yahweh alone... This is the same term, for example. And those notes the, uh, the uh, Septuagint. Septuagint has manos. Kurios manos. Yahweh livado. I forget. I'm, it was on our witnessing with the word t-shirt. We've got to remake those. I bet you. I bet you. Somebody still has it. Rich, do you still have your witnessing with the word t-shirt? That's a question. We've got to remake them because I love those shirts. And one of the Isaiah texts that we used for the Mormons primarily um, had to do. Oh, Rich says he don't doesn't. I'm getting the feeling, Rich, that we're, we're not uh, live casting right now, um, but that you, uh, but that you're listening anyways. Okay, all right. So I, I, did, I didn't think you'd be hearing this, but anyway, cool. Um, all right. Uh, we've got to redo those though. We really, really do. Uh, we may have some pictures of people in them, and I could figure out from that. Um, Henry Wall, I bet, has still has his was yellow. I remember that. Anyway, this is used in the demonstration of monotheism in the trial of the false gods in the book of Isaiah. Same term. In fact, let me. I'm I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head, kids, and we're getting toward the end of the hour, but doesn't matter. Yep, there it is. Ha, ha, ha. Found it. Isaiah 44, 24. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens, what? Actually, live there. By myself and spreading out the earth all alone. All alone. That's Yahweh. Except we know that Jesus does that. In concert with the Father. That's... One being Yahweh, three persons. It's right there. If you if you if you let go of your sophistry, submit to the word. It's right there. Um, you you can get it. But and the men who were high, the kings and the rulers say, "Fall on us." We'll be made low, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves and rocks, into holes in the ground. Before the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. And the writer of Revelation says, Ah, the one who sits on the throne, Father, the Lamb, their wrath, this is the fulfillment. And it's Yahweh alone who is exalted in that day. And the Unitarian goes, uh, yeah, it's because Jesus is just a creature, and so the glory just goes to the Father. Don't worry about all of creation worshiping the Lamb. That's uh, We don't want to worry about that. Sorry, you people don't believe the Bible. No, you don't. No, you don't. You use it as a plaything. You use it as a plaything, you Unitarians. That's all there is to it. So... I got to chasing this stuff and seeing all these threads and the connect, connectedness of these texts. And what does it tell you about the authors of Scripture and what they believed about the exalted nature of Jesus? And that got me so excited that I said, I don't care how I feel today. I couldn't do it yesterday because I couldn't sit up for more than a few minutes. And I'm probably going to crash after this. <laughs> but... I wanted desperately to get this out to you because there's somebody out there that I think is going to be really blessed by it, needs it, may not know that you need it right now, but you're going to be talking to somebody, you're going to be talking to some Jehovah's Witness, some Unitarian, some friend of yours that's getting sucked off into some weird cult, and you're going to be able to go back through this episode, maybe make some notes in the back of your Bible, and go, look, look, look. Look, look at how Jesus is described in Jude 4 and 5. 
Uh, yes, there's a textual variant. But now you know how much contextual evidence there is that Jesus is the proper reading there. Not, not only do you know what CBGM is, and by the way, Dale Tuggy never mentioned CBGM. I'm not, Wasserman and, and Gurry have written the introduction to CBGM. I'm not sure why, but he, he may not understand it, and very few people do, okay? Very few people do. I get that. Um, but if he's going to address it, he should at least address the reality that CBGM points to the greater coherence of the Jesus reading than the Kodios reading, which he didn't even mention, because he probably just doesn't understand it. Um, it's not his area. So anyway, hopefully you'll be able to use this information and present it to others. It's not the kind of stuff you can do in a short period of time. This is the kind of stuff you sit down with a friend uh, at the coffee shop, uh, sit down with a friend after church, sit down with their neighbor over dinner. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to do on the street corner. Um, it's too long. It's too involved. I get that. But sometimes you got to do the long involved stuff and go, Man, there's a, you know how, those of you who watched the program for a long time know, I have, um, I have used the language of a tapestry, the, 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 the weaving together of a beautiful, complex tapestry where you have threads of different colors going all sorts of different directions and and they form this this beautiful tapestry and the more i get to delve into the word of god the more i get to be the beneficiary do you have any idea how blessed we are to live in the day we live we have all of this i often think that the the psalmist in psalm 119 had a much expressed a greater love for scripture than most Christians do today and he didn't have anything more than the Pentateuch and maybe a few books after that and we have all of this we have Ephesians and Romans and John and when you allow it to be connected together and one of the sad things about the the education in most of our seminaries today is that this is all broken apart. It's broken into pieces. You don't... It, it, is, it is appropriate to understand the context of each book. It's a, that's perfectly fine. But there isn't enough emphasis put upon the interconnectedness of the themes and the phraseology. And especially when you're doing Hebrews and Revelation, you've got to pay attention to the Old Testament citations. You've got to see the threads that are interwoven. And this uh, despota tai koreos, uh, des, despotes, depends on how it's being functioned, how it's used. This master and Lord, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, when you realize that has an Old Testament background to it, and then you dig in and you go, wow, it's a direct Old Testament background. It's not just simply simil similarity in phraseology, but this is he who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. This is this is judgment. Jesus is the judge. That's what's going on in Jude uh, four and five. Jesus judges the people, destroys those, those who do not believe. They're denying the only Master. Wow. This isn't just one book, little short book Jude over here someplace. It is meant to be in here. It's meant to be a part of this. And it's, I just get the feeling that once we leave this life and the limitations of our ignorance and our, and our traditions and, and everything else uh, goes, goes by, we are going to see consistency and beauty that we cannot begin to imagine. That we cannot begin to imagine. Um, it's, it is such a privilege uh, to be a servant of Christ and to have his word. Really, really is. And I really hope that my efforts uh, today will be a blessing to some of you out there. Uh, because I just felt 
compelled uh, to take the time to do this. Uh, even if it puts me back a day in recovery, it doesn't matter. Um, I need I needed to do this. And so I hope it's helpful to you. My um, apologies for any mistakes I made in passing because uh, couldn't concentrate as well as I normally do or, or whatever else. Um, I, uh, I've done the best best that I can. And um, Lord willing, uh, we will be with you uh, next week in health and vigor. And the week after that as well, uh, because I'm going to be here in the Colorado area and uh, we will uh, try to continue to uh, benefit people through ministry at, at that point in time. So thank you for watching today. Share this with others who need to be confirmed in their faith. Uh, and um, God bless you all.